The Witch Wave is brought to you by The Conjured Saint. It's a spectacular online resource for handcrafted magical artifacts, including ritual oils, sacred bath and body products, and spiritual cleansers. You'll find these and much, much more on theconjuredsaint.com. Even better, Witchwave listeners get 20% off by using offer code WITCH, that's W-I-T-C-H, at checkout. So what are you waiting for? Go to theconjuredsaint.com and conjure some new magic into your life today. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Zoo's Incense. They make exquisite hand-rolled incense cones with natural ingredients sourced from five continents, and they never use synthetics or charcoal. I've fallen nose over heels in love with their many magical blends, such as their Moon Mix, which is made from myrrh, sandalwood, and orris root. Go to zoosincense.com, that's Z as in zebra, O-U-Z as in zebra, incense.com, and use offer code WITCH to get free shipping on orders over $20. Let Zoo's Incense transform your space into a sanctuary. The world is filled with bewitching people. And you might be one, too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. This is our second love-themed episode in honor of Valentine's Day. And yes, it's also my birthday. This year, I'm planning on celebrating via a little getaway to Boston and Salem for a few days. I'll be up there with Matt, visiting some friends and family, popping into the gorgeous jewel box that is the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, and then topping it all off with an event on Saturday the 17th at Housewitch in Salem. I'll be doing a reading and conversation there that evening, so if you happen to be in the area and you'd like to be part of it, tickets are available at housewitchstore.com. That's house spelled H-A-U-S, like housewitchstore.com. I'd love to see you there. Now, when you're born on Valentine's Day, it's really hard to ignore the holiday. And for me, the two are inextricably linked. When people find out it's my birthday, they tend to have one of two reactions. Sometimes it's, aw, that's so sweet. Other times it's, that must be a lot of pressure for your partner. Honestly, we just tend to focus on my birthday, so I think it's actually a lighter lift for him overall. The only real problem is getting dinner reservations. But it is true that I don't completely know what it's like to celebrate one without the other. When I was a kid, my mom would make me her annual heart-shaped cake. 
and bringing birthday cupcakes to school always had to be accompanied by a stack of Valentines to give out to my class, too. What's interesting about Valentine's Day is that, like a lot of holidays, it's actually a conflation of many different stories, traditions, and symbols that have built up as a sort of scarlet sediment over the years. Though the candy and card-bedecked day that we know now didn't get popular for centuries after this, folks like to remind people that the pre-Roman festival Lupercalia was originally celebrated around this time. There are lots of conflicting reports about its origin, but it's believed to have been a series of rites meant to bring purification, fertility, and to ward off evil spirits. According to legend, the name Lupercalia is derived from the she-wolf who nursed the twin boys Romulus and Remus, the former of which went on to found the city of Rome. Because of this association with this time and wolves, I like to connect to my own inner she-wolf and honor my own wildness. As Diane de Prima wrote in her splendid poem cycle, Loba, I turned to confront, to face her, ring of fur setting off the purity of her head. She who was to have devoured me stood strong, patient, recognizably goddess. Lupercalia is most likely not connected to the Feast of St. Valentine, other than sharing close positions on the calendar. Valentine's Day as we know it didn't start to crystallize as a holiday of love until the 14th century, and the candy and card extravaganza didn't emerge until the late 18th century. And its symbols of hearts, cupids, and roses are all much older than all of this. Cupid is the Roman name for Eros, the son of love goddess Aphrodite. It's said that the rose is named after him. According to myth, Aphrodite's lover, Adonis, was killed in a hunting accident. When Aphrodite found him, her tears mixed with his blood and turned roses red forevermore. The rose has been associated with goddesses for thousands of years. The great Sumerian goddess Inanna, the Egyptian goddess of magic Isis, and the Virgin Mary, to name just a few, are all linked to sacred rose mysteries. The phrase sub rosa means beneath the rose, as for centuries, roses have been painted on ceilings or carved into lintels to denote a place of secrecy and privacy. Valentine's Day, then, is a perfect time for rose magic. A beautiful thing you can do for yourself is to take a rose bath using rose oil, rosy bath salts, or best of all, rose petals. As you sink into the water, know that you're connecting to a spiritual lineage of divine feminine magic. It's a love spell of a sort, a private ritual of self-love and adoration to help your heart bloom open. Now, since it is both Valentine's Day and my birthday, I thought I'd invite someone very special to be my guest on today's episode, and that is my love, the playwright Matthew Freeman. We're going to be talking about having a spiritually mixed marriage, the magic of theater, and crafting our own love ritual. 
But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches! Pamela writes, Hello, I'm 10 days away from my birthday, and I just wanted to get some info or advice from you on what's a good thing to do in terms of connecting more with the universe. Are there any rituals to make my Aquarius sing more? A Pamela with an Aquarius birthday? I swear I did not write this myself. Well, Pamela, I'm not sure what else you've got in your chart, but we Aquarians do tend to live in our heads a lot. And since we're air signs, we're also sometimes prone to being a bit flighty or lost in thought. So I recommend doing something luxurious and grounded to help balance that out. I've talked before about trying to consciously live in my body more. And that means that this year for my birthday, I'm going to be getting one of those infamous tarot haircuts, which I mentioned on the first ever Witch Wave episode. I love it because it will nourish my spirit by giving me whatever divinatory messages the guides have for me this year, but it will also make me feel physically cared for, so it's a really nice combination. Other ideas to help with embodiment for Aquarians, or for anyone really, can be as simple as going outside, getting a massage, dancing, hey, taking a bath. Anything to help us celebrate and honor this vehicle called a body that we've been lucky enough to get to ride around in for another year here on Earth. I hope that helps, and I hope you have a marvelous and very happy birthday. Now, on to my guest. Matthew Freeman is a playwright and director whose work is often steeped in surreal and magical imagery. He has written numerous plays, including That Which Isn't, When Is a Clock, and The Listeners, the latter of which Time Out New York described as having, quote, a swinging Alistair Crowley naughtiness. Imagine the wicker man sprinkled with pinter. His plays and monologues have been published by Samuel French, Smith and Krauss, and others, He's a McDowell Colony Fellow and a current resident playwright at New Dramatists. He also happens to be my husband. I talked to him here at, you guessed it, our Brooklyn apartment. Matthew Freeman, welcome to The Witch Wave. <laughs> Hi, Pammy. It's so lovely to have you here. Now, you are a playwright. You are also my muggle husband. And we've been married for seven years and together for 13. And I wanted to have you on the show for a bunch of reasons. First of all, you're my favorite playwright. <laughs> And uh, just an all-around, of course, delightful, fascinating person to talk to overall. So I want to talk to you about theater and language and their relationship to magic. And this is also the Valentine's Day episode. And I can think of no better person to discuss love and magic with than with you, my perpetual Valentine. (laughs) So we're going to start with the topic of love. And I feel compelled 
to give a big disclaimer on this that first of all you and I are not love experts we are figuring out our shit every day would you concur with that I would indeed (laughs) but um (laughs) also because I feel like I don't know there's always those those like relationship experts that try to position themselves that way and they inevitably doom their relationships like remember that guy john gray who wrote men are from mars women are from venus i do indeed i remember that coming out and being popular yeah, yeah and inevitably he got divorced and then i remember like jenny mccarthy had some like love relationship book come to market and in the process of publicizing this book she had to announce that she got divorced so so i want to make sure i am not dooming our relationship by having you on here to talk all about love and how happy and perfect we are oh my god definitely definitely not the intention here wow this is suddenly framed with very high stakes But um, <laughs> but frankly, I do think that our relationship is a little bit different than what some of my listeners and readers might imagine. And what I mean by that is, you know, I called you a muggle and you are not a very quote-unquote witchy dude. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I would say that's right. Yeah. <laughs> And one of the questions that I get a lot, especially from kind of younger witches or witches who call themselves baby witches, is as they're kind of dipping their toe out of the broom closet, they get nervous that they're not going to be able to find a partner who accepts this about them or their partner's family might not accept this about them. So I wanted to ask you firstly... What is it like to be a muggle in a relationship with someone who identifies as a witch? I mean, this, I imagine, wasn't what you expected for yourself. Uh, yeah, it was not what I expected for myself. Um, and even when we met, I knew that you were interested in spirituality and the occult, and this has evolved with our relationship, I felt like. Um, It's definitely become more public, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But uh, what is it like? I mean, I don't know. It's um, I can't I can't really answer what it's like to be with someone who is a I can answer what it's like to be with you. And I know that you are a witch. It's it's you know, we have a two faith household or multiple faith households because we also have different backgrounds, you know, you were raised Jewish, I was raised Episcopalian, and we both have other ways in which we express ourselves spiritually in the world than those backgrounds. So I think we both have a complicated relationship with all of that, and that's what makes it fun and interesting. Are there any surprises or anything that you found yourself doing or involved with that's become a more regular part of your life? than what you would have assumed, you know, when you were younger, when you were picturing your future partner. Definitely. I mean, I never expected to be standing in a room full of of witches getting smudged from head to toe as I closed my eyes and, you know, had incense covering my entire body. Or, I mean, just doing simple rituals. Like sometimes it'll be a 
a special night. It'll be a new moon or something, and we'll do something at home. And I'll participate as best I can. Or when you call circle, I'll participate with that. And that's certainly not something that I imagined for myself when I was younger. And just the word itself, I've learned a lot about the word witch, um, which meant very different things to me when I was younger. And the idea of it as a feminine archetype feminist archetype and as i've learned also men can be witches yes, but they uh, can. yes they can but um all of that is new to me and exciting to learn about so yeah i mean i'm surprised by that i'm surprised by the conversations i have with certain people but it's surprising and fun it's never surprising and like oh what have i gotten myself into it's more like <laughs> you know what i mean it's more like wow i never expected this and that's delightful most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> so that brings me to, you know, we have had to navigate some conversations with our families. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about our wedding in particular and the yeah. ceremony behind it and how there were certain witchly aspects that were really important to incorporate for me. My family is Jewish. Your father and stepmother are both Episcopal priests and your mother and stepdad well, your mom is definitely a churchgoer. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was important to you when it came to crafting our wedding ceremony together in terms of honoring all of these different faiths that are in our lives? I think I wanted it to reflect us. You know, we're a contemporary couple, and we both asked ourselves, what is it about marriage that is important to us to have this ritual? And We both said community is important to us and family is important to us and having all of our friends together. But we also talked about, okay, what is it that we love? Like I love storytelling and I loved having people stand up and tell stories and read poems and things like that. That was just as important to me as anything else. But I think we also wanted to respect our family history. We weren't doing it our own way in order to reject our parents, we were doing it our own way in order to embrace ourselves. And so I loved our solution, which was to invite our parents to bless us in their own traditions from themselves, because that meant what they cared about was a part of the service, but it wasn't what constructed the service, which I thought was lovely. You know, I'm a theater guy, so ritual doesn't scare me. Mm -hmm. It's something I love. And rituals that are built around a particular expression or exercise or idea that's what I love that's what I love to build and make and so I never felt like we were at cross purposes or you wanted to bring in magical ritual and I wanted it to be more traditional I think we both envisioned something that was made by us and for us to express us mm-hmm. and that seems like You can call it theater, you can call it ritual, you can call it creating a sacred space. I mean, whatever it is, I think we came together pretty well on that. Yeah, and we had moments that were very pagan and witchy. We cast circle and called in the seven directions, but we also had lots of quotes from like, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which you love because you're a huge stinking nerd. And, <laughs> we, and you know, we had lots of poetry because we both love poetry. Um, I'm a nerd. You have a witch podcast. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> um, but I remember even backing up a little bit further, 
you know, when we first started dating, the fact that I wasn't Christian was something I was nervous in terms of how your family was going to navigate or accept or perceive. And when you add being a witch on top of that, especially becoming the daughter-in-law of a priest, that definitely was something I was nervous about. And to your entire family's credit, they've been incredibly loving and accepting, even as I'm sure I'm not quite what they pictured either. Sure. (laughs) I mean, they adore you. You're adorable. Um, Easy to like, you know, easy to love. Sometimes. Well, I, 95% of the time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I guess it was funny because you were more anxious about that than I was. I think because, well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I think you imagined that I had a certain relationship with my family, that, you know, I was really, really close with them and that that if they had some sort of problem with that, that was going to be an issue. And I am close with my family and I love them, but I live very much my own life and many people do. And if anyone in my family, to my surprise, would have had an issue with this, it would have been uh, tuned down very quickly. It's just not something I would have taken very seriously but also this is a very accepting warm loving family and they are people who just want wanted me to be with somebody who they liked and thought was right for me and so it was it was less complicated I think than we were both fearing in that way I I also think you know obviously there are moments where things are wonderful and a little mistimed because people have a cultural difference. I remember my mother adores you and she sent you a Passover card. Do you remember this? Yeah. Right. And you were like, people don't really send Passover cards, but this is super nice. You it know? was so sweet. It's incredibly sweet. Because- I didn't even know they made Passover cards. <laughs> so it's like the nicest thing in the world because she's like, "This, you are Jewish and it's Passover, so here's a card. Because, you know, Christian people send each other cards or whatever. Um, I think everybody sends, sends each, each other, other cards. cards. Uh, Passover cards, I guess, are not a thing. But well, I th- obviously they are. She found one. I'm very <laughs> impressed. But, you know, it's, as long as everybody's acting with love and intention and the intention to show love, then what everybody's used to can be adjusted. And- yeah, that's how I felt actually having your dad bless us as part of our wedding ceremony. Yeah, It's a Christian prayer Mm -hmm. and I think some people who don't come from the Christian faith or who maybe didn't have the ideal experience with the Christian faith and they've shifted away from it have strong feelings around oh I don't want that kind of language at my wedding right and for me I'm like well I don't care what religion you come from magic is intention and as long as someone is blessing you with love I don't care what they say or what deities they're invoking, mm-hmm. you know, as long as the, the language isn't offensive. Sure. Um, if it comes from a place of love, what? Uh, sure, I'll take Jesus's love. I'll take anybody's love, yeah. you know. Well, because it's my father's love, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, it's his way of expressing it. And look, there were conversations about what we wanted him to say and what we didn't. But I didn't want him to remove the word Jesus entirely because that's the whole point. Exactly. Is that he wants to express that and speak that way. So, you know, an open and accepting acknowledgement of 
our beliefs requires us to be open and accepting of his beliefs as long as they include being open and accepting exactly you know as long as that's part of the belief system Um, and here he was blessing our wedding in his own way and he wasn't our officiant I think that's something to remember we he he even though he's officiated over many weddings he wasn't for us he just participated in the wedding our friend Linda was the officiant yep and so all of the people participating in a more official capacity in our wedding were friends and family and I think that that's beautiful you know exactly I thought so too and I feel compelled since you told the story about your mom in the Passover card to to tell her (laughs) a really and I love I love her and I love that she did that and if she's listening this is in no way making fun of her it was really sweet but there was one Christmas that she and your stepdad gave me a moon magic candle and a mug that said witch's brew on it and it was so touching to me and first of all it was all shit that I would have bought myself of course it was a reflection of them knowing me and knowing my tastes but it was also such a generous impulse because it's like yes this is Christmas but we're gonna get you this pagan witchy stuff and I just felt so so lucky in that moment and and your family overall I lucked out and I know a lot of people marry into families that aren't quite so accepting or come from families that aren't quite so accepting so I know that that's not an easy solution for everybody but right. it's something I really appreciate and it's been an ongoing learning experience for all of us too for sure I mean let's be honest I mean you know there have been times when my family has asked you questions that were sort of like which 101 because they're trying to learn but it can feel like guys you know I've had moments where I think do you need to ask this question you know you've known Pam for so many years but you know that's just part of everybody learning to accept each other and love each other you know do you know what though like I feel like I've been guilty of that too like when I first came into your family especially in terms of my relationship with your dad and stepmom who are both priests the first couple Christmases like I always bought them books about Christianity and Mary because I was like I want you to know that I am okay with this Christianity you know what I mean and it's like you overcompensate and it comes from this place of of I think love but I now know that your dad loves detective novels. Right, and the best thing to buy him is old cowboy movies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like, he has Bibles. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it, it all comes from a good place for sure. Yeah. The other part of our wedding that I really appreciated is because you're a theater maker, so many of our friends, and especially the friends that you've brought into my life, are actors and writers and directors and and people who are very comfortable with like you said ritual and ceremony and I remember when we were going through our rehearsal for the wedding the woman in charge that came with our venue Mm -hmm. she like eventually just left because you guys were so on point in terms of like okay you stand here and then you hold the goblet up and do I wave the incense in this way like everybody immediately fell into place because Mm -hmm. so much of magic I do believe is theater and so much of theater is magic and that's something I've learned from you and from spending so much time in the world of theater well I agree with that I mean I think I annoyed that woman I think I annoyed her (laughs) because she kept trying to say well everybody stands like this and I'm like that blocking doesn't make sense to me 
the sight lines. What the about sight the lines? sight lines? You know, why would I stare stand this way? I mean, people won't be able to see my face. <laughs> you know, and I have all my friends up there. And it was funny. I remember they weren't used to a groom who took such an active interest in where everybody stood. But I had two thoughts. One is I really cared. And the second was I had so many theater friends up there that if they see a vacuum, they will fill it. So they would jump in and be like, actually, I think maybe you should stand over here. So I was like, I have to come in there and be pretty clear about my opinion. Um, but it was funny because like, that's what we do. We, you know, I feel like theater people are great at weddings because they put on a show all the time and most people don't. Exactly. But there's also that element of just like, sure, what do you want me to do? Cool. Like, yep. you know, a lot of your friends are also not very witchy. A lot of the people you've brought into my life who have become family at this point. Right. But there's... We're, all, we're all witches now. <laughs> exactly. Witches <laughs> by extension. But the fact that with theater... When a play happens and those lights come up, those props and those costumes are imbued with a kind of magic and a kind of meaning. And so you can give somebody a prop, mm -hmm. an empty glass, yeah. but if in the scene that glass is supposed to be filled with wine or apple juice or water, whatever it is they understand that conjuring of going into the imaginal space and saying, okay, let's pretend, but there's a weird space that's filled when you're committed to pretending so much that real truth and real change is somehow channeled through. And I felt that way getting back to our wedding because your friends are so used to that magic trick that if I say to someone, okay, yes, this is a cup of water, but actually this is calling in the direction of the West and water in the West. And they're like, cool, cool. You know, like there wasn't a lot of explaining that I had to do. Sure, absolutely. One of the, the things about theater is that all the actors and the playwrights and the directors and the people who make the sets, they know more than anyone what backstage looks like. You know, they know that they are Im imbuing things with meaning and purpose by by their will and belief. I mean, that's what you do um, because you watch them bring the props in from outside and you watch that table get built and you watch the empty stage turn into a living room. And so you know what it was and you know what it is and you know that it'll be gone, you know, when the run is over. So all of the meaning is brought to it by you, it, you know, actors are the people who believe on our behalf. They stand there and they believe in something and create the belief in it. They're really priests in that way. Their faith in what they're doing and their pure imagination that is expressed through their emotions and through their carefulness and through their understanding of the text, all of that allows the audience to believe. Mm -hmm. And But... One of the things that the actors get that the audience, I mean, everybody knows it's not real, but the actors know better than anybody. They're the ones who are can literally see off stage and they know their cues coming and they have the, all this extra consciousness about what's being invented. But you, you said it's not real, but I would argue that it's very real. Like, yes, it's not real in that it's contrived, but... The feelings as an audience member, and perhaps as the actor too, are real. 
I mean, there are so many, I, I don't have to tell you this, mm. uh, but there are so many experiences that I've had as an audience member where I felt genuinely transformed and moved and I mean art art does this to us in general Mm -hmm. good art anyway and um sometimes bad art (laughs) (laughs) but that is real that Mm -hmm. the the imagination and the commitment to it and the applied intention of the imagination becomes a transformative vehicle I think that's totally right I mean I think that we imagine the world that we want to live in I mean the world is made up of very material stuff and in order to make a different world you have to be able to to imagine that world and so I think what artists do is create a sense that things can be different or or allow us to empathize with people that we're not Mm. And uh, but yeah, I think you're right. The emotions are real. The feelings are real. The and the wonderful thing about theater, as opposed to say watching on film, is those people are there. It's real people in real space in real time. So there's an energy exchange, and there's no way that you can't experience the reality of that. That there's a substantial difference between watching a film and I love movies, and you have to bring a lot to it. The actors bring something to you on stage. There's there's a, there's a feeling in the room that this is happening only one time. Even if they do it tomorrow night, they're only doing it in front of you this one time. And the immediacy of that, it shows that energy exchanges and spirit, whatever it is, is a real thing because you can't not notice it in a room of people who are imagining the world together like that. Yeah, and that's something that I've learned and it's been a real gift in being with you is when you have a a show that's up, I see it many, many times. You know, I see lots of rehearsals for it, but also I see a lot of performances in a way that I don't with any other theater. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's too many plays that I've seen multiple times other than yours. And it's so true that night to night, it is really different. There's different energy, different palpable ingredients that vary and that I can walk away from one of your plays on one night feeling elated and on other nights feeling sad and on other nights feeling like it was really kinetic and energetic and on other nights feeling like it was more contemplative or somber and it's the same words but it really just depends and and that's why I think it's so similar to when I'm doing a ritual because there are certain quote-unquote props there are certain words that I say every time or there are certain actions I take every time And yet, depending on my presence, my mood, the day I had, the energy in the room, whatever it is, it feels different. There's an aliveness to it that doesn't come from a lot of other artwork. It's true. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, what we bring to it is what it gives back to us or what we experience. And also, there's no guarantee it's going to bring anything that day. It's like, you have to do it often. You have to sort of do it again and again because you change. Yeah. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Have you visited chaseandscout.com yet? They create handmade jewelry that brings spirit to your style and makes you look and feel spectacular. 
I especially love their caged crystal pendulums for attracting positive energy and their lunar landscape rings for making moon magic. You can order these and so much more direct from their studio in Austin, where they design each piece for those with tastes both strange and beautiful. And if you use offer code WITCH, you'll save 20%. So go on ahead to chaseandscout.com and find something for your sweetheart or for your sweet self. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm here speaking with Matthew Freeman. One of the things that I admire most about you as an artist is that you're a shapeshifter yourself. You'll go from writing a scathing political comedy to a surrealist fairy tale, and then you'll do a more abstract kind of Sam Beckett-inspired wall of beautiful words and poetry. And it reminds me of some of my other favorite artists who are very chameleonic, whether it's a David Lynch, a David Bowie, Coen Brothers, you know, people who span genre. I remember people called Madonna the mother of reinvention for a while. Um, So yeah, I am comparing you to Madonna, honey. I deserve that. (laughs) So I am curious why it is that you feel compelled to write in all these different styles. Why do you keep reinventing yourself every time you sit down and start a new play? Um, I think, well, first of all, I don't like repeating myself because I just get bored. Maybe it's just my attention span. You know, if I just wrote that play, I don't need to write it again. And I also think a little like somebody's diet, what goes in comes out. And if I'm currently... That's gross. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Sorry. Can I put it another way? Yeah, yeah. I'll put it another way. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) okay, so just like, you know, um, I don't know how to put it now. You are what you eat? I mean, I don't know what to say. I like that better. Okay, you are what you eat. It's less, you know, disgusting. Yeah, sure. So my point is that, you know, you go through phases of things you're enjoying. Like I, I wrote a play recently called Long Trip by Sea, and... I wrote it right after I read Death in Venice for the first time. Like I just, I was inspired by an image in that book, and I said, you know, here's the 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 germ of an idea, and it bloomed into a certain kind of play. And I have all these influences that filter through into that idea. So maybe you know Beckett shows up, or Ionesco shows up, um, and I don't really worry about whether or not what's showing up or who's speaking through me. If it comes off as derivative or if it comes off as reverential or if it comes off as just me having a good time, I think the point is express yourself and however that comes out, it comes out. And so some of my favorite artists really, you know, I think about Bob Dylan and how he basically wrote the American Songbook over again. You know, he was Woody Guthrie and then he was Allen Ginsberg and then he wanted to be a rock star and he wrote gospel music. And, you know, he just did an album of Frank Sinatra music. He did Christmas album. And it's, it's, he, you get the sense that Dylan's into Christmas music right now. So he's going to make a Christmas album. And that sort of shapeshifter, as you would call it, it's all Dylan. 
even though it's derivative or influenced by other things, it's what makes him such a great artist is what he absorbs and what he allows, what he's absorbing to filter through him. And I want to have a large scope of work that expresses myself in many ways. And I think the more you or more I allow myself to just be what I love, the more ways that that comes out in the work. Absolutely. And I will say as someone who is uh, very, very familiar with your oof, and you've (laughs) written an insane amount of work. I mean, you're honestly one of the most prolific artists I've ever known. How many, how many plays have you written? Oh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to (laughs) that question. uh, 30, 40? Oh, yeah, probably. And, you know, but, it, it, you know, look, I mean... You've written a lot of plays. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's something that I'm always impressed with, just how generative you are. And right now you have so much work that hasn't even been produced yet because yeah. you just write and write and write. And it's it's really incredible to witness. But one thing I will say is that no matter what style you're writing in, I do think a marker of your work and one of the things I'm most attracted to in your work is that you're very comfortable operating in that liminal space of mythos and fairy tale. And often, I would say like with David Lynch, and one of the things you and I both love about David Lynch is sometimes you don't even fully understand where the images and the words are coming from and yet you put them down anyway do you think that that's fair to say i think that's right i mean i try to express as clear a thought as possible but sometimes something just feels right and you can't shut down something that feels right just because it doesn't like fit into a structure perfectly i mean structure shouldn't suppress what you feel Mm-hmm. I mean, what what are you expressing art for if you're not allowing your instincts to win most of the time? You know, they should win. So I like to just let things be what they are and, you know, trust that they work. You also do incorporate a lot of magical imagery and alchemical language into your work. I'm thinking about a play like When is a Clock, which is about... Well, it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, an occult noir story in a way. The premise being there's this, this man who can't find his wife. And he goes on this very strange dreamlike investigation to try to figure out what happened to her. And it turns out that she literally transformed herself into a clock right. through some kind of, of magic. When it's a clock was very influenced by you, actually. Because it's true. Well, there were pieces of other plays that sort of fed into that to the script that I had written before, but none of they. There were ideas about people transforming things because theater is very much about transforming things. And the original idea of the old play was that someone would change the world by identifying it as a theater space and like eradicate the world by saying, "Look, we're all not real." And that was very college idea, and I liked it then. But it wasn't exactly. (laughs) It wasn't really a mature thought yet. And then. You and I went to a a class together at the Open Center about the implicate order. And I had just read some sort of whatever novels. I think I read some Paul Auster and some Murakami. And that class really made me think about this idea of, you know, rules that are unclear. Mm. But that exist in the world. And you always talk about cosmic breadcrumbs. Ah, following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs. Right. Yes. It's your term for synchronicity. Right. Right. Following the clues 
of your life. Right. Yeah. And so basically the detective in When as a Clock is doing that. He's following the cosmic breadcrumbs. He finds synchronicities that lead him from place to place. And I used alchemical terms in the play that I learned from you, like uh, the bookstore is called Prima Materia Books. And so a lot of that, you know, they always say artists are sort of, you know, thieves. And uh, <laughs> and so a lot that play is a patchwork of lots of different things, things that I was thinking about and I care about and I like. But also, like, you and I were just, um, I think we were three or four years in our, our relationship at that point. And I was learning a lot of interesting things from you, and they wound up in that play for sure. And I love that play. Yeah, you really are a, a big influence on my work in a great way. Yeah, I'm not to say you, you know, I don't want to, you to make you feel like I'm just following you around, stealing your ideas. <laughs> but uh, but I love I, I love your I love your way of looking at the world, and I think it's a beautiful way to create drama. <laughs> Is that, a, that was mis, uh, misspoken but it'll probably wind up in the podcast yes, yes. Oh, you, you can count on that i think i laughed too loud into the microphone Aww. well that's that's really sweet and like i said i've learned so much from you about theater and about theater as a magical act so the feelings of mutual darling oh, shucks you also have a play called that which isn't that is kind of an homage or an exploration to grief and loss. It's only three characters and it's a two-act play and the first act feels like it's it's occurring in this very liminal dreamlike space. It's a couple who have broken up or are in the process of continuing to break up in slow motion and there's this gorgeous tree that is a huge anchor, a big symbol that's in this scene. And then in the second act, the play becomes much more material and grounded. It takes place in a restaurant, but the tree is kind of inverted. And it reminds me of the concept in Norse mythology of Yggdrasil, the world tree, which also to me connects to the alchemical concept or phrase as above so below that there's these constant balancing poles and that we're always striving to maintain some kind of equilibrium between these two poles and I don't know if that's intentional on your part when you're writing something like this, and yet when I see your work, I see these these mythic images come through all the time. Hmm. Um, I think I think you, you and I share a love of mythology, and share a love of fairy tales and fantasy in that way, and all of those things are gardening from the same soil. And so those things will appear. I would say that I want to give credit to Carrie Lee Chipman, who was the set designer for That Which Isn't, who had the problem of making a tree turn into a restaurant in a very small space <laughs> and did a beautiful job of transforming the tree into the table in which they sit and created that image. You know, sometimes it's just wonderful happenstance that creates these images and just necessity. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that play is very much about grief and how we remember people and how we lose them. But the main, when you talk about transformation, the main character in the play, there's a stage direction in the beginning of the second act that says that the audience, 
I'm, a stage direction for the audience is not very effective, but it's true. It's right there, <laughs> and it's it's basically the, the one one hopes that the audience isn't sure right away that she's the same person. Mm-hmm. Right, that the tone of Act One and Two are so different, and the character is so different that it should feel like she's not, maybe she's playing somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we can be that different in our lives. We can, you know, and how we present ourselves in a private space and in a public space or with a lover versus someone we've never met. You know, how I am at home with you is not how I am at work. <laughs> That's probably for the best. Yeah, it's probably probably for the best, for sure. But, you know, we're all very different in b- many different ways. And I think those transformations are one thing that makes a good story. So you have a new production coming up in the spring. I understand it's a series of some of your short works. Is that right? That's right. And one of the pieces in it, I'm specifically and particularly excited to see again because it was only up for one night in 2016. And I can't wait for more people to get to see this. So can you talk about that piece? Sure. That play is called The Language. It was written for you. It was written for The Language of the Birds, the gallery show that you did at NYU um, that was so beautiful and inspiring. And I, you know, it's funny because I'm often hesitant to cross our streams, so to speak, (laughs) Um, you know, because there is, there are ways in which you and I could sort of overlap and collaborate. But I kind of, I feel like it's healthy for everybody to sort of do their thing. You know, you really are pursuing your path and I'm pursuing mine and we get to cheer each other on. So when you asked me to write the play, I remember being a little hesitant about it Mm -hmm. um, because I knew how important this whole thing was and how impressive your gallery show was going to be and how much work it was going to take. And I didn't want to be something you were worrying about or emotionally complicated or any of that. So I, I remember being a little hesitant about it, but I was very happy with how it came together because... I got to work with two actors that I love, uh, Moira Stone and Robert Honeywell, who are terrific. And the piece is abstract. It's... um, It felt to me like an incantation almost. mm -hmm. Um, And I've talked about the art show before, but this was a survey of occult art or artists who are influenced by occult ideas. And that was kind of the only direction that I gave you in terms of, you know, us commissioning this piece from you. Right. And so the fact that it's kind of this beautiful wall of language and there is a lot of repetition that feels very Mm spell-like was perfect for the show. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've often written plays that have this sort of repetitious incantatory feel. And so that fit already. And then I just thought about you and the work that you were making. And so, you you know, you're very laced, you yourself are laced into this because everybody uses their life story or the life stories of the people around them. So I felt like, you know, I wanted something that was infused with your energy to be a part of your show. But I also think it expresses my aesthetic very well. And it has a I don't think it's lyrical because it's a little more aggressive than that. Mm. But it's definitely about listening closely to language and the struggle to express something. The two characters are, um, one of them is desperately trying to read from this book and, and complete her thought, even if it's very hard to understand. And she keeps being stopped by pain. And the other character is sort of prompting 
her to urge forward as she tries to express her thought. And it felt um, it felt very uh, strong and, and beautiful to put together. And I'm excited to put it on a stage because we did it in a gallery. And I'm excited to return to it and, you know, just delve deeper. And on that note, if you would read an excerpt from it, I've queued up some of my most favorite choice bits. So here we go. Let me hand that over to you. Okay. Okay. So once again, this is from The Language by Matthew Freeman. Okay. And um, just a fair warning, this is hard to say. (laughs) And I apologize in advance. Okay. She speaks it and only you can understand me. No now, yes now, yes no now, only you. They can hear me, but they think it's not what it is. They can't hear you. Yes, you. Yes, you. Yes, you. You. Yes, you. You. Yes, you. The attic wide open. Open wide. Wide open. Who could pass it up? The smell of dust. The box of Archie comics. Dust of old joke books. Box of clothes for dolls. So hot up there. Circular window that overlooks the driveway. What have you got there? What have you got there? What have you got there? What have you got up there? When it opens, fluns out in its vestral and tomjorn. Have you found it? Show it to me. Your hand. What is it in that's in your hand? What is behind your back? Show me the spells. What are they? What are they counting down to the end of night? Oh, beautiful. And I'm actually going to have you read the second excerpt that I picked out from the language as well. If you would The be, whole thing? If okay. you would be so kind. All right. I will, okay Do what I say Yes, all right All right, you're in charge You're in charge Let us all speak the language Let the language be spoken Let it refuse to be hidden Let it hide and be uncovered Let the language become its own translation Let the words of the language be codified By new authors Let the language be spoken by druids Who built with stone Let the language be spoken The future perfect and the dangling participle Let the language be found out, and let the lights shed on it be found out, and let the ages of all fading starlets be found out, and may the ink used to copy over the language to parchment be found out, and shouted, and cupped in a palm, and recreated by scholars, and lost and found, and lost again, and found again, and recreated, and retranslated, and forgotten, and spoken again. Let the language come to us in overhead, guided by Annopolis. Let us Realize we were born with the language, but it is corrected like our left-handedness and lisps. Let us all speak it. Let us all speak it together. Let us speak the language. Let us speak it. Let it be spoke. What have you got there? What did you find in your uncle's attic? The attic, the attic, behind the ferns and the gulch, behind the talisman slid into the floorboards, in the glowing patches of the sand, in the future. What have you got there? He can't manage. What have you got if you can't get it out? So beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. I love it. I appreciate so much. it. <laughs> I hope I read it okay. It was gorgeous. Thank you. Sure. And we're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about language overall. If you're anything like me, you're probably pretty obsessed with candles. And that's why I'm over the moon to tell you about Mithras candles. They are my favorite. They're made of pure beeswax and handcrafted by my extremely magical pals in Philadelphia. They have a gorgeous drip style that looks like something out of Lord of the Rings. They smell like honey-scented paradise, and they come in a variety of shapes and sizes. 
Mithras candles are a perfect addition to any home or sacred space, and I can't recommend them more highly. They're available now at MithrasCandle.com. That's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. I'm here speaking with playwright and husband, Matthew Freeman. So Matt, you just read from the language, and I want to talk to you about language and writing overall, because there's such an intrinsic relationship between word and magic. You know, I I must have said this on the podcast 10 times already, that the word abracadabra roughly translates to, I create like the word. In other words, what I say or what I write becomes something and the word spell and spelling are related the words grammar and grimoire come from the same root so do you find that when you're writing that it feels like a kind of magical experience like where do you think the words are coming from you know, it's funny. It depends on where, where you are in the process because it can feel like work. It can feel like drudgery. Sometimes it feels like you're holding your breath. You know, it can feel, you know, like slogging through. But then something just arrives and you don't know where it came from. I always think of it as sort of coming through me as opposed to out of me. Mm. But yeah, those things just sort of arrive and it does feel trance-like and it feels like you've caught the tail of something mm, um, I love that. you know and you're just hanging on and when those moments happen that is when the work really comes for me anyway that's when it comes out I don't write all the time I'm always sort of have ideas in the back of my head or things that I'm stewing or feeding it with reading books or seeing other theater or going I I often find I write a lot after I've been to a gallery or been to a museum I'm often very inspired by visual art but once whatever I've been feeding has been fed enough then I'll sit down and I'll write something very quickly it'll just kind of pop on out it'll all just flow and that feels very much like it's been conjured as opposed to built. What is your relationship to spirituality these days? Like, do you find your creative process to be at all spiritual? Or is that not necessarily how you would define it? You know, my relationship with spirituality as a person is very, um, I don't want to say shrug your shoulders, but I don't have like a very strong relationship with spirituality myself you know I mean I think it's a big part of my life but I was raised Christian and I I had a wonderful experience with that actually I did not find myself in a defiant posture towards Christianity in some way I just sort of developed my own way of viewing the world and I kind of let that be you know I just kind of there are things I don't know and I'm okay with that But in terms of my work, I'm interested in the aesthetic of the work and how it, I don't know. I mean, I don't think of it as spiritual work, but I do think of it as artwork and not just storytelling, you know? Like, Mm. I feel like storytelling is, you know, narrative is something that people sort of build. And like, I keep having this thing coming back to like build or conjured. And building is, is art, obviously craft is art. But 
I don't think of myself as somebody who's constructing something so much as I am sort of trying to express something. Mm -hmm. And that must be, by its nature, I think, a, a piece of, you know, like your spirit or some part of you that you want free. Do you think it comes from outside of yourself? Um, I think, sure. Yeah, I do. I think it does. But I also think it's very me. And so, you know, I've heard stories of people saying, you know, the song showed up and I just had to go find some place to write it down. Oh, yeah. Like there's that great story Elizabeth Gilbert tells about Tom Waits and interviewing Tom Waits. And Tom Waits is like driving his car and a song taps him on the shoulder. And he's like, can't you see I'm driving? Like, (laughs) come back later. You know, because it's this this experience of, yeah, it's showing up and you having to catch it in the moment. I think that the impulses are transitory. I mean, I do know that there are times I've started plays that I was really excited about and I took a couple days away from them and they just die. They don't get finished. Mm. But I'm not precious about that because that is not, I don't think of that as sad. It's okay. It's just part of the process. And anytime I've tried to hammer a play to death until it comes out, it does not come. It has to want to be there, and I have to also be a part of that process and, and trying to make it be there. But I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I hate to say I don't think of it as spiritual. I just don't use that word. No, that's totally yeah, fine. But I do think of it as trying to express something, and, I, and it's not about me. It's about who I'm communicating with. I always think that the goal is to communicate with an audience. I mean, I want to express myself, but I really, when I'm making something, I'm thinking, how will this affect the people who watch it? Mm. And how, how am I changing how they feel or how will this moment affect them? And sometimes that's very exciting and it just kind of flows. And sometimes if it feels a little too hard, I'll wait for the one that's easier because, you know, it's not laziness so much as it is respecting the impulse. So speaking of your personal spirituality... Anybody that knows you knows that you have two other obsessions in addition to theater. The first is Star Wars, <laughs> and the second is professional wrestling. Yeah. And circling back to the beginning of our conversation, when I was writing my list of, you know, who my soulmate might be or what he might look like or be into (laughs) you have so far exceeded a lot of those wishes and hopes but I will say that especially the professional wrestling one (laughs) I, I did not see that coming and you know one of the things I've learned about love is that it does show up in different shapes than you might expect it to and you have to be open to that too and I I do want to paint a picture for listeners who aren't familiar with you when i say that you're obsessed with these things i'm not being cute about it like how many times have you seen just the last jedi the most recent star wars movie in the theater 17 times yes you have gone to the theater you have paid money and sat and watched this film 17 times and it's been out for how long uh, well, it came out in December, so. And this, we're recording this in early February, so. Yeah, just, so, a little, just a month and a half or so. Right. So you really do get, you know, I call it Talmudic. Like, you get really obsessive, and I don't know that you're studying these things as much as you're, like, 
absorbing them and and reveling in them or how 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 would you describe it um i guess i just um I'm, there must be some ocd in there somewhere but i i mean i just um they're oh, they comfort me they're comforting Mm-hmm. And I'm a 42-year-old man with a complicated life. And I have loved these stories since I was a little kid. And, you know, it's that Joseph Campbell myth stuff. You know, that's why I like Star Wars and not... I mean, I like Star Trek. I like science fiction. But science fiction is about accuracy and ethics and things. And Star Wars is about how to be a good person and being a hero and, and all these things that really connect with me and make me check in with myself. But also, I think one of the reasons I watch them over and over again is because when you're a kid, when I was a kid watching the originals, you're so familiar with them. And part of the feeling of these movies to fans like me is that they feel like you've known them your whole life. And so when you watch a new one, it's weird because you didn't, you haven't known it your whole life. And so some part of my brain just wants to feel like I've known it my whole life, I think. And so mm. it just sort of like watches it over and over again until I feel like I've known it my whole life. You know, it, I think it, that's a little piece of it. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're similar with professional wrestling, though, too, in that you watch... It's not just the new matches. Like now, the WWE Network has archived every freaking match they've ever had, pretty much. And yes. you, yeah, and you watch these old matches. And I often say, like, I'm impressed you can even decide what to watch. Like, it takes you and me almost an hour to pick out a Netflix movie together. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, you, you're like, hmm, you know what? I want to see the Iron Sheik match from 1993. Iron Sheik wasn't wrestling in 1993. (laughs) I fucking knew you were going to say that. (laughs) But point being, I just love your decisiveness. It it always impresses me. You know, it's like picking out a wine. You know, you know it. (laughs) You know, you know what you're in the mood for, you know? What did you have for dinner? What Ric Flair match would you like to watch, you know? Uh. Exactly. Ric Flair goes really well with tilapia. Well, he did wrestle for many decades, so there's lots of Ric Flair to choose from. <laughs> but, but you know, there is, uh, and I'm not being silly here, I do see a relationship between all these things because Star Wars and wrestling, they are about, you know, duality and the ongoing grappling between good and evil, the light side, the dark side. In wrestling, there's the the good guys are the baby faces and the bad guys are the heels, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that, I don't know, I've always seen as a theme in your life, as, yeah. as kind of a, a witness to you, that, that you've been very attracted to stories that have clear definitions of good and bad. That's true. And in fact, I will, I'm not going to talk about this long, but I will say as I've gotten older and the people who write wrestling have changed over the years, they've gotten much worse at telling the good guy, bad guy story. And it's become a worse show to watch. Because it's more convoluted? Because they're, they don't know who the good guys are anymore. Mm. They're bad at telling that story now mm. because the people who run it are wealthy people who think being a winner means be, just being a winner mm-hmm. as opposed to overcoming adversity. Right. And so how that story is told is very important, you know, but I, it does matter to me. Yeah. I mean, clearly I have opinions. No, but could we say what, what you just said made me think of like, isn't that also kind of the narrative of this country right now? Like, for sure. Look who's in the white house. Like I know we're being very political or very clear on our opinions and I don't expect everyone who listens to this podcast to necessarily share them. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, like the bad guy won, we have the heel 
in the White House right now. Yeah. I mean, he did participate in pro wrestling. He was in a WrestleMania. But uh, I will say um, what we have right now is a direct result of very bad art. Mm. You know, the salesmen who created a television show that was about bullying people. I mean, that's terrible art. You have an interesting tendency in that you, Matt Freeman... You, you love heroes. Like, your favorite Muppet is... Kermit the Frog. <laughs> yeah. And your favorite character in Star Wars is... Luke Skywalker? Yeah. Like, you, you love a good guy, <laughs> even when you're playing video games, and you could be a villain, and you could, you know, get your rocks off and sleep with all the prostitutes or murder all the... I don't know, mafioso or whatever. I don't know these games that you're playing, but anyhow, <laughs> you 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 always like will choose the good and moral path. Like even in your fantasy life in these video games. Yeah. What do you think that's about? What is it that is attracting you to the light side or to trying to be a steward of the light side? I'm a sociopath. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, um, it might be being raised by an English teacher and a priest. Um, it might, I don't know, we all have the things that we aspire to be or try to be in the world. And I think that there's a point in a lot of people's lives where being a, a good guy is boring. You know, that it's more fun to be the anti-hero and it's more fun to be pushing back and, you know... Uh, I'm not going to listen to you guys. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's great. And I have that impulse. Well, you have the most twisted, dark sense of humor of yeah. anyone I've ever met. But at the end of the day, I want to be someone who is there for the people I care about and who's fighting for the good stuff and making the world a better place. And we're all the lead character in the story of our lives. And I want to be that kind of lead character. You know, I want to be the lead character I would root for. Well, Matt Freeman, you are a Jedi as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> High praise. <laughs> and um, we're coming up on time, but I am really grateful to you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, if you said no, I would have absolutely understood, but I'm really honored to get to share this time with you, to get to share a life with you. <laughs> You're just the best. And in a terrible segue, Matt Freeman, how can people find out more about you? <laughs> Let's uh, go into shilling mode. Oh, boy. Well, you can always just ask Pam because she's my best, my best promoter. Hype woman. Hype woman. <laughs> she enters every room like a pro wrestling manager and points at me like, this guy's the best. So um, P.T. Barnum yeah, of exactly. our lives. I mean, I have a website, which is MatthewFreemanWriter.com, which is maintained sort of. And I think that that's probably the best way to find me. I also have Twitter, which is MFreemanWriter. You also have an aggressively boring Instagram. Yeah, like, yeah, I do. Like, this is a little bit of the dark side. Your Instagram is a little I'm just bit... showing people what life is like, man. Your Instagram mocks Instagram in that you just want it to be as mundane and... But the thing is, you kind of... You fail at it a little bit because <laughs> you're trying to take these pictures of boring ugliness and yet... You are such a gifted artist that they're compositionally really beautiful, great photos. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't know if they're great photos, but they're definitely of stuff I can see. <laughs>
like from where I'm sitting, I can take a picture just like everybody else. All right. And then I'm going to be your Lady Macbeth and promote more things about you, um, which is you have a couple plays available for people to buy and they are so beautiful. And I know that this is like so saccharine and biased and yet I'm also a snob and I wouldn't be able to maintain a relationship with someone whose art I didn't love and you are just my favorite so can I tell a story really quick (laughs) I know we're almost out of time (laughs) but I remember the first play that you came to see of mine I was in yes right and it was in 2004 the play was called The Americans and we had just started seeing each other and I was so anxious because not only had I written it, but I was in it. And the fact that you dated me afterwards, I was like, you like the play. <laughs> oh, thank God. Um, no one was more relieved than me. I brought some friends with me and I remember saying to them, oh my God, I hope I like this play. <laughs> and I loved it. And I love your work in general. And I love you. I love you too. So there we go. Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. Happy Valentine's Day, Pammy G. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Matthew Freeman for making time for me between viewings of The Last Jedi and for being such a dang delight in general. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com and I might answer you on The Witch Wire. The Witch Wave was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Pam Grossman. Our theme music is by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a really lovely rating if you may. It really makes a huge difference. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you know what? If you have an iPhone, you really might dig my witch emoji for iMessage. Fill your texts with images of witches, spellcraft objects, and magical symbols in a variety of skin tones, genders, and colors. You can do that by searching for witch emoji, all one word, in the App Store, or by going to witchemoji.com. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.